working now. The book of Revelation chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we honor God's word this morning. Revelation chapter 5, uh, we're reading verse 1 and following. Here's what the scripture says. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll and to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and... As though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. And to open its seals, for you are slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many around, angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000, 10,000, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and earth and under the earth and such a, that are in the sea and all that are in them are heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word today. And now as we approach your word, we ask you that you will empty us of sin and self and fill us with your spirit so that we could submit to your inerrant, infallible, all-influential word of God in our lives. Father, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. Dr. Jerry Vines is one of the most well-known pastors in America, was asked one time if he were to give one advice to ministers and church leaders, what would it be? Dr. Vines answered without any hesitation. He said, whatever you do in ministry, and in the church, you do it for Jesus. If you do it for any other reason, 
any other reason, you will become an old, bitter, cynical person. Whatever you do, you do it for Jesus. And I agree with Dr. Vines. If you do what you do for other people, you will be prone to despair. If you do what you do in ministry and in the church for personal advancement, you will be discouraged. If you do it for financial gain, you will be greatly disappointed. Whether you preach, teach, lead, servant staff, engage in evangelism, whatever you do, do it for Jesus. Do it for Jesus because Jesus alone is worthy. He alone is worthy because he is the Lord of history. He is the Lord of history. Revelation chapter 5 is one of the most Christocentric chapters in the entire Bible. Everything that you want to know about Jesus, you could learn from Revelation chapter 5. In this chapter, we get a glimpse of heaven. Look at verse 1, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Who is this person sitting on the throne? The entire preceding chapter highlights the fact it is the holy, sovereign God who is sitting on the throne. Look at verse 8, and the four living creatures had six wings of chapter 4. Uh, were full of eyes around and within, and they did not rest day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is the one to come. Who is sitting on the throne? It is the sovereign, holy God of this universe. People occasionally ask me, where is God? I'm in this chaos that we are facing in the world today. And my answer is, God was on the throne. God is on the throne, and God will be forever on the throne. People ask me, where is God today where our culture has become so antagonistic to the things of God? And my answer is that God was on the throne, God is on the throne, and God will be on the throne. Perhaps you're asking yourself, where is God when I'm facing enormous challenges in the church and in my personal life? And my answer to you today is that God was on the throne, God is on the throne, and God will be on the throne. As Adrian Rogers used to put it so well, the Holy Trinity never meets for an emergency session. The sovereign God of this universe is sitting on the throne, and he has a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? The New Testament scholars have debated the identity of the scroll uh, for centuries, and I have counted at least nine ways that I have, under, that have understood the identity of the scroll. We don't have time, Brother Keith, to go into detail over those nine views, but I side with Herschel Hobbes, one of the greatest pastoral theologians who believed that this scroll is the scroll of history. 
God holds history in his hand. Now, the scroll has an inscription on the inside as well as on the outside, sealed with seven seals. What is written on that scroll? I believe what we have there is the redemptive history. It's how God has worked redemptively in the context of human history. So we have the sovereign God of this universe holding history in his hand. A strong angel declares with a loud voice next and says, who is worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seals? And so the surge begins. The scripture says, first of all, they look in heaven. Verse 3, they look in heaven. Now think about it. Michael, the guardian angel of Israel, was there, but he kept silent. Gabriel, the greatest trumpet player the world has ever known, been there, but he too could not say a word. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah who could say, Here am I, Lord, send me, could not step forth. Peter, who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, held his tongue. James and John, who said, we want to sit on your right side, uh, on either side of you in the kingdom of heaven, could not step forth. No prophet, no patriarch, no preacher could be found worthy to open the scroll. And the scripture says they looked on earth in the world of science, philosophy, politics, and sports, but nobody could come forth. Then they looked under the earth, and either the devil nor his demons, nor all the armies of hell put together could open the scroll. Now, the fact that no one in heaven on earth or under the earth could open the scroll broke the heart of John. In fact, the Scripture says in verse 4, So I wept much because, because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll and to look at it. Now, why is John so upset? You see, if the scroll is not open the entire redemptive history is put in jeopardy. If the scroll is not open, forgiveness is not available. If the scroll is not open, people, when they die, would go to hell. If the scroll is not open, Satan would rule on the earth. If the scroll is not open, there would be no punishment of the wicked, no return of Christ, and no reward of those who love Jesus today. A great chess master was asked once to preview a painting, a new painting in in a fancy gallery. The title of that painting was, You Cannot Play Games with the Devil. In this painting, there was a young man playing chess with the devil. And the reason why they invited this great chess master to come because the pieces on the board were arranged in such a way that no matter what move the young man makes, he was going to lose. And so this great chess master examined the pieces on the board and he paced back and forth. He must have examined the board for about 30 minutes and then he screamed, wait a moment, there's one more move left. As he examined the board and he found that there's one more move, if this young man takes, then he could defeat the devil. 
I believe that must have how John felt at this point. When nobody could found worthy to open the scroll, he thought that all was lost. And Satan is victorious. But as he is feeling that way, he hears one of the elders in verse 5 say, Do not weep. Do not weep. There's one more move left. What is that move? The scripture says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The lion speaks of royalty and power descending from King David. And John gets comfortable with this image of power and royalty. And then he looks up. And then verse 6, Behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, in the midst of the uh, elders, stood a lamb as though he had been slain. Now this lamb has seven horns, speaks of perfect power. Seven eyes, speaks of perfect knowledge. Seven spirits, speaks of the Holy Spirit. So when all appeared to be lost, God showed John that there's one more move left. And this move is the lion lamb person. Who is this person? It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the royal son of God, who humbled himself and became like one of us, so that he could die like a lamb for our sin, shed his precious blood for you and me. Now, don't miss verse 7. Look at verse 7. Then he, this royal lamb lion figure, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and takes the scroll out of the right hand of of him who sat on the throne. Jesus takes the scroll out of the hand of the sovereign holy God, and now all of history is in his hand. Now all of history is in the hand of Christ. Jesus is the Lord of history. Now, listen to me very carefully. Jesus is the only person in all of the world who is worthy to be called Lord. He is the only person in the entire universe who is worthy of your witness. He is the only person in this universe who is worthy of your life, of your service, of your obedience, of your submission, and even death. Pastor, deacon, church leader, let me encourage you. Whatever you do in life, in ministry, do it for Jesus. Because he alone is worthy. He is the Lord of history. But wait a moment. He is not only the Lord of history, but also he is the Lord of victory. He is the Lord of victory. Notice what happens in verse 8. Then when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fall before him. Who are those four living creatures? I believe they're God's angels, probably the cherubim, whose role is to coordinate the praise of God in heaven. 
than the 24 elders. Who are the 24 elders? I believe they represent the redeemed from all ages, 12 from the Old Testament, 12 from the New Testament to today. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, I believe you are a part of that number. Now, here's what they're doing. The Scripture says they fall before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. People ask me from time to time, what are we going to be doing in heaven? One of the things that will be engaged in heaven is worship because harp speaks of worship. I, didn't, I had a lady come to me the other day and said, Dr. Jake, I, um, I really enjoy preaching. I really enjoy preaching. I just don't really like worship. I really don't like praise and worship. And I said to her, dear sister, maybe you should reconsider going to heaven. Because what do you think we'll be doing there? One of the things that we'll be doing, we'll be worshiping God for all eternity. But not only will we be worshiping God for all eternity, but also we'll be reflecting on the work of God on the earth, because the scripture says, in golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Have you ever prayed a prayer for a person or for something, but you didn't get the answer that you thought you need to get? Well, don't worry about it, because you have to, all of the eternity to figure out why. We have all of eternity to reflect on the work of God upon the earth. Now, verse 9, they are... Then they're singing a new song. What is this new song? It says, you're worthy to open the scroll, to open its seals, for you are slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood out every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests, and we shall reign upon the earth. What is the essence of this new song? The essence of this new song is about the crucified Jesus who shed his precious blood for our sins. I overheard two ladies the other day talking about a young man that came to faith in Christ in church that served as interim pastor several months ago. And the conversation went something like this. Did you see Johnny? I mean, he just got saved. He was dramatically, um, and uh, he was dramatically saved changed i mean do you see him he, i mean he comes to church regularly he he now reads his bible he prays i mean he's on fire for the lord the other lady looked at, him, at the other lady and she said oh yeah he just got saved he loves jesus but he'll get over it he'll get over it that is our problem I believe that is our problem, is that we have gotten over what Jesus Christ has done for us when he shed his precious blood for our sins. I believe one of the reasons why we are seeing decline in evangelism is because we've gotten over Jesus. Think about it. In eternity, we'll be praising God. That will be the theme of our worship. Praising Jesus for what Jesus has done for us. May we never get over it in this life. Now, don't miss this. There's a reason why the four living creatures in the angelic choir and the 
the 24 elders, the redeem of all history, fall down before the Lord, the scripture says in verse 8, is because Jesus is not only the Lord of history, but also he is the Lord of victory. Through the, his, through the cross and through his precious blood, he defeated hell and death. He is the Lord of victory. Jesus is the only person in all of the world who is worthy to be called Lord. Jesus is the only person in the whole world who is worthy of your witness. Jesus is the only person in all of the universe who is worthy of your life. Jesus is the only person in this world who is worthy of your service, of your obedience, your submission, and even death because he alone is the Lord of history. He alone is the Lord of victory. But wait a moment, there's more. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of glory. Look at verse 11. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000, 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with the loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So what we have in verse 11, billions and billions of people, a number beyond calculation, that is the description of redeemed from all of history, offering perfect praise to God. In verse 12, we have a seven-fold doxology. We have seven characteristics that are mentioned there, seven qualities that are mentioned, power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory, and blessing. And I believe uh, they are those qualities that, that represent everything that Jesus did not get the first time he came to the earth, but he will receive the second time. Let's listen to this. He came in weakness but he will reign in power. He became the poorest of the poor, but unto him belongs the riches of the universe. Man called him foolish, but he's the wisdom of the ages. Man mocked his meekness, meekness, but he will be praised for his strength. He was butchered like a lamb, but he will receive the honor of a king. He was rejected in shame, but he will be bathed in glory. He became a curse for the sinner, but he will receive the blessing of the sovereign. Our perfect Lord deserves the perfect praise. Verse 13. Now everybody is praising God, every creature. Notice it says every creature which is in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and such are in the sea, and all that are in them are heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. And never. Did you say, our Jake, that everyone is praising God? That's correct. Does it mean that here we'll have Hitler praising God? Does it mean that here we have Stalin praising God? Does it mean that we have Muhammad praising God? How is it possible? Go with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every, in the Bible, means every. Every, point, every person at some point in the future will confess Jesus as Lord, but some will confess Jesus as Lord for their commendation, and some will confess him as Lord for their commendation. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will bow before him, and that will be for your commendation. If you do not know Christ, it will be your for condemnation. Now, look at verse 14. This is for me why I do evangelism. Here's what happens. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Now only redeemed, in verse 14, by worshiping the Lord for all eternity. The lost that were present in verse 13 are absent. Now they're separated from God in all eternity because they are forever condemned. Let me ask you this question. Can you live with the fact that people in your community will miss out on the praise of God for all eternity? Evangelism exists because worship does not. I believe the most urgent task that we have as believers and as a church is to share Christ with those that are without Christ. Think about it. Every function of the church that we have, we'll be able to do it better in heaven than we can on earth. I mean, think about worship. And what a wonderful time of worship that we've had together during this evangelism conference. But think about it. When we are in heaven, We'll be able to worship Christ perfectly. Think about fellowship. I mean, we have a wonderful fellowship, Louisiana Baptist Convention and the churches that we have. But think about in heaven, we'll have perfect fellowship with one another and with our risen Savior. Discipleship. And the purpose of discipleship is Christ-likeness. And we try, we endeavor in this life, but only in heaven we'll be like Jesus. Think about ministry. <laughs> I mean, in heaven, all of our needs will be met. So all of the functions of the church will be able to, uh, all of the functions of the church will be able to do in heaven better than we do here on earth except one we will not be able to engage in evangelism in heaven. Why? Because there will be no lost people. That is why I believe that should be the most urgent task of every believer to proclaim Christ, and that should be the most urgent 
task, I believe, of any pastor especially. Several years ago, I did a major study on personal evangelism where I have analyzed the work of about over 300 pastors, especially in the area of evangelism, personal evangelism. And basically, when we looked at the personal evangelism, this massive study, we looked at personal evangelism from three uh, perspectives, what the pastor did in the pulpit in the area of personal evangelism, what he did in teaching his people in the area of personal evangelism, and what the pastor did actually when he shared the gospel verbally with people in his community personally. And the greatest predictor for baptisms and evangelistic effectiveness of those churches was not what the pastor preached, not what he taught, but what he actually did. Now, was it important that he challenged his people to proclaim uh, that they would be soul winners? Yes. Was it important that he equipped his people to do so? But the greatest predictor in that study was the fact that what that pastor actually did personally in pointing people to Christ. I believe pastor, and I'm speaking to pastors as a pastor, the most urgent task for you is not just to preach or teach, but actually do it, proclaiming Christ. The second, I believe, most urgent task is for you to equip others to share Christ. My first church that I pastored while in seminary was in Springfield, Louisiana, in a rural area. When I got there, we had about 30 people. I was still in seminary. All that I knew was that Jesus is the answer. And the Bible is the Word of God, and every person in that community needed to hear about Jesus. God began to bless. We began to see many people come to faith in Christ. But as a result, the family that has been very influential in that church for many years began to feel that they were losing the grip on the church. So about two years in my ministry there, I was uh, leading a prayer meeting in the morning, one morning about 6 o'clock a.m., just praying for the community, and, and I invited everybody who wanted to come and pray with me, and I had a young man from that family came, and we prayed together, and when we, and to this day, I remember, it happened many years ago, to this day, I remember when we got off our knees, he looked at me and he said, Pastor, my family has decided that it's time for you to go. I mean, what do you mean? He said, it's time for you to leave. And I said, why, why do you think that I need to leave? And here's what he said. He said, because we believe that you've gained too much influence in this community. And I looked at him and I smiled. And I said, well, my definition of leadership is influence. I guess I'm doing a good job <laughs> reaching this community for Christ. And you say, well, what did you do? The next three years, one of the hardest years of my life, but I have chosen to love this family. I've chosen to forgive them. I cho chose to work with them, and I chose to equip them to share the gospel with others. Now, forwarded 20 years, forwarded to two years ago, this man that told me, it's time for you to go call me. By this time, the, 
Um, the Lord has blessed him. He became the largest crocodilian farmer in all of the world, exclusive provider of alligator hides to Gucci and many other corporations, the largest crocodilian farmer in the world. So he calls me and says, well, Jake, um, we haven't talked in a long time, but let me tell you my story. He said, um, there was a community building in this area, the old church, and I felt that I needed to buy this church, this building, and turn it into a community uh, building for people to come and uh, play basketball. But I, as I was doing that, the Lord spoke to my heart that I need to plant the church here. And I thought maybe I'll bring somebody, a church planter, but God said, no, you will be the church planter here in this community with this building once you purchase it. So I'm listening now. He says, the reason I called you, I want you now to mentor me. Because I've never done ministry as a church planter. Can you mentor me how to plant this church? I said, well, why are you asking me? You know what you said? Because he said, you are the one that taught me how to share Christ with others. Two years later, this church is averaging 200 right now. In fact, he texted me today. He was on his way to, he was returning from Amsterdam where he went to witness to one person. And he's on his way to a J.P. Morgan Bankers Conference tomorrow in Houston where they ask him to speak about his faith in Christ. Pastor, the most urgent task that you have is to point people to Jesus Christ personally. The second one is to equip others how to do it. Fritz Chrysler was one of the greatest violinists who ever lived. He played a Stradivarius violin. The way how he came to this violin was the fact that it belonged to another uh, Brit, and Chrysler offered to buy it multiple of times, but this wealthy Brit refused. So one day he asked for an appointment with this Brit, and he got there and offered again to buy this violin, and this man said, it's not for sale. And he said, well, can I at least play? And he allowed him to play, so he began to play. And as he was drawing the bow across the strings, it seemed like the angels in heaven were singing. And as he was playing, this old man just sat there and wept. When, when he finished uh, he asked to buy this violin, but the old man said, no, it's not for sale. But it is yours to keep forever. For you are the master. You alone are worthy of this violin. I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this morning that Jesus alone is worthy of your witness. That Jesus alone is worthy of your life. Jesus alone is worthy of your service. Jesus alone is worthy of your obedience. Jesus alone is worthy of your submission. And Jesus alone is worthy of your even death because he is Lord. Pastor, deacon, church planter, church leader, let me encourage you. 
to do whatever you do in life and ministry in the church, do it for Jesus because he alone is worthy. Since he is the Lord of history, he is the Lord of victory, and he is the Lord of glory. Would you stand with me as we pray? Now, as we pray, would you pray with me? Asking the Lord, asking the Lord to enable you to do everything that you do in life and ministry and the church, that you will do it for Jesus. That it will be your primary reason. Ask the Lord to give you this empowerment by his Holy Spirit. And then would you ask the Lord in 2023 to enable you to make personal evangelism the most urgent task of your ministry in your life? And then would you ask the Lord to make training others in evangelism the second most urgent task of your life and ministry? Lord, we come to you right now as your people, and we ask you, would you enable us to do everything that we do in life and ministry and in the church to do it for you because you alone is the Lord of history. You alone is the Lord of victory. You alone is the Lord of glory. You alone is worthy. And then would you enable us in 2023 make personal evangelism the most urgent task of our lives and our ministry. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.